0: Listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Hi, Faith Church. We're the Fitzgeralds. I'm Nell, and I'm Joe. And we've been members of this church body for over 40 years. We also have been married for almost 63 years. And we celebrate both of these accomplishments. We've been asked to read the Bible verses for today. They're from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. in his mouth. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Oh, this is my favorite time of the year, or at least my favorite time of the spring, because it's sleep with the windows open weather. Any, anyway, I can get some amens on that. It was great about a week ago when it finally got warm enough at night to, to open the windows and sleep all night, you know, with the, the windows open. It, it was not so great the last uh, two nights when it got colder again. Um, and we kept the windows open because once you kind of start down this path, you can't go back, right? Uh, Yesterday morning, I woke up to um, an interesting sight, how my wife had attempted to warm up in the middle of the night. Because, you know, the temperature doesn't, like, really get cold until, like, 5 o'clock in the morning. And I guess that's when she got the, the coldest, and so got up, went to the bathroom, got a bath towel, came back to bed with it, laid it over her spot, and then slept under the blankets and a bath towel. We don't have nice, thick, fluffy bath towels. Like, it contributed nothing (laughs) to the heat retention capabilities of the bed. And so I woke up that morning and and saw this, and it was like, "Hun, what? A bath towel, I mean, it covers half of you. It's a poor substitute for a blanket. Why didn't you just go to the closet. It's like closer than the bathroom. Go where the blanket is and get out like a full blanket, one that's big enough to also cover me and, and, and use that instead. And she was like, well, I just, I didn't want to have to unmake the bed and put the blanket on and make the bed again. And also I hoped you wouldn't notice. So I did what any loving husband would do. And, and I said, well, honey, if you're cold, it's on you. To, to get up and brave the cold and get, no, I didn't do that. I actually got out of bed, braved the cold, all four steps of it, to get to where the blanket was, and I brought it back, and, you know, I took off the comforter, and I put the blanket on, I put the comforter back on, and then I put the towel back on over her <laughs> to make sure she was as warm as she could possibly be. I know, right? Pause for a round of applause. Thank you yes oh man first hour did not give me that round of applause they were like dude we've been here for 50 years you know nothing <laughs> now that's that's a it's a stupid little domestic story right uh, of one of those little things that happens between a husband and wife or parents and their kids or friends and, the, and their roommates it's one of those little examples of the, the the tiny little self-sacrifices that build the foundation of a healthy relationship right That's what it got me thinking about, is that relationships grow and flourish. In fact, they only survive to the extent that people in the relationship are willing to put themselves in the place of the other. They're willing to get out of bed on a cold morning and get a blanket and do what the other wasn't willing to do. Yes, basically I'm saying I'm like Jesus. Because that sort of self-sacrifice is absolutely vital in our personal relationships with one another. It's also vital in our relationship with God. That self-sacrifice applies to both relationships. That's why in Lent, we've been making our way toward Easter, preparing ourselves to consider the self-giving of Jesus in His crucifixion, in His death, and His burial, and His resurrection. And we've been exploring it in light of what Isaiah says about Jesus in this song written 700 years before Jesus was born. In this song, Jesus, we don't know it's him yet, if we're reading this for the first time back when Isaiah wrote it. But in this song, he introduces us to the Servant with a capital S this servant who would come to rescue Israel from their exile, even more than that, rescue the world from their sins. So this week, we're looking at verses 7, 8, and 9. We're two weeks in. This is week number three. We've got one more week after this looking in this song. But this week, verses 7, 8, and 9, learning more about this servant and what he did when he put himself in our place. Now, what we're going to learn from this passage basically boils down to this, one key idea, uh, that only a willing will can substitute for an unwilling will. Only a willing will can substitute for an unwilling will. Now, I know that's not totally clear right off the bat, so what I want to do is Take a few minutes here to look at verses 7, 8, and 9. Make a few comments on these verses. And then we're going to take kind of a turn towards the theological. I'm going to draw out some big picture theological observations from these verses. And explain what I mean when I say only a willing will can substitute for an unwilling will. So if you've got that, let's jump in. If you will. We're going to start in verse 7. Uh, beginning of this stanza, this uh, fourth stanza of this five stanza poem, verse seven, we, we notice right away that Isaiah is continuing to talk about the suffering of this servant. In fact, in the whole song, it's, it's about his suffering, explaining how it was misunderstood, explaining what was really going on in verses four through six. Now, back to seven again about how people didn't get it when he was suffering. This, but, but in seven, eight, and nine, Isaiah is making this key point that he hasn't made yet that this suffering that the servant goes through is anything but accidental or passive. In no way is this suffering just something that happened. This was the plan. So let's take a look at the first line, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Now, this is poetry, and like all good poetry, words are employed in specific ways that uh, allow them to be read with sort of multiple shades, and that comes into play here on this word afflicted. He was oppressed. He was forced to suffer, but afflicted is a word, it's in a form that can be read both as something done to a person and as something a person does to themselves. So he was oppressed, yes, and he was afflicted, yes, but we can also read it with the shade of he was oppressed and he, as for himself, humbled himself. He was oppressed, but how did he respond? He afflicted himself he humbled himself he actually the rest of the line tells us he silenced himself he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth that's what the sheep analogy is all about that follows in this verse now i don't know enough about sheeping to know if sheep are normally silent when they're about to be slaughtered or sheared Um, My assumption was that sheep probably never shut up, um, and they, I mean, that's what you would assume, but I, so I did some research, um, found a great YouTube clip of a sheep that had so much wool after, anyway, that's a side story, I won't go down that. Um, I did some research, and and the the commentator on these videos is saying like, oh yeah, sheep love getting sheared, especially the older ones that have gotten used to it. They just, like, they literally lay back and just let their burdens go as the shearer cuts it away. They don't make uh, hardly a peep at all. However, um, the lamb led to the slaughter. There is a little bit more noise involved with that one. So the point of the analogy isn't that, you know, like a sheep, this servant is just, he's not going to make a noise. He's not going to say anything at all. The point is uh, something more like, Sheep don't have any real awareness of what's coming when someone grabs them and hauls them away. They don't know if they're off to make a sweater or if they're off to make dinner. And so whichever direction they're going, they just sort of mutely and and dumbly follow along. Is Where you want me to go? Okay, we'll go this direction. The point that Isaiah is making here is that the servant though silent like a lamb like a sheep nevertheless knows full well what the end of the road is that he's being led down he knows what's coming but he doesn't protest he knows what's coming but he doesn't open his mouth he firmly and deliberately knowing what's at the end of this road he chooses to allow himself to be afflicted, oppressed. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't raise a fist. He doesn't raise his voice. The servant that Isaiah is telling us about, this servant is silent in the face of unjust suffering. And verse 8 continues the story, actually shows how it's so much worse. Uh, Take a look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Uh, Oppression through an unjust judgment. After an unjust trial, he was taken away to be killed. And as for his generation, uh, his contemporaries, the circles of his peers, the people who saw this, as for the people who saw this happening, who among them considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that he was stricken for the transgressions of my people? Of the people around Jesus when he died, around the servant, spoiler alert, I think the servant is Jesus. We'll get there in a minute. As for the people around the servant when they saw him die, like who who got it? Another translation renders it even more forcefully. It says he was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Who even cared? It wasn't a thing that you get bent out of shape over. Now, place yourself in the servant's shoes. I imagine it's hard enough as it is to willingly give yourself, sacrifice yourself for someone else. It's hard enough even if they understand what you're doing, right? Even if they get the point of what you just did, right? When you do the the dishes for your housemates or for your spouse or for your kids or whatever, you do the dishes, you, you point it out because they need to know you sacrificed time for this right? That's how our kind of sacrifice works. Uh, But the servant here is sacrificing himself in the face of of a crowd of people who just don't understand what he's doing. They don't get it. How much more difficult is it to to give of yourself when the very people you're giving to don't understand what you're doing? This is the, the plight of the servant, even when The people around him didn't know what he was doing, he opened not his mouth. He submitted himself, afflicted himself to the sacrifice he was called to make. See, no one understood that he was cut off out of the land of the living. That's a euphemism for killed. No one understood that he was killed, that he was stricken for a purpose for the transgressions of my people, Isaiah says. And verse 9, verse 9 makes the confusion even more palpable uh, because verse 9, um, the first half of it, uh, is confusing to the point where it borders on the nonsensical. Uh, take a look at it. Uh, and, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, it doesn't make sense. He was, okay, so he was intended to be buried like a criminal. That's what it means when they said they, they made his grave. They intended his grave to be with the wicked, with the criminals. But somehow he ended up with a rich man in his death. Somehow he ended up in a rich man's tomb. This servant was intended to be killed like a criminal, and ends up being buried in honor in a rich man's tomb. Like, that doesn't make sense. I, we get the part. Yeah, he hadn't done any violence. There was no deceit. Okay, so he was blameworthy. Or he, he was uh, uh, not blameworthy, excuse me. Uh, he was innocent. But this other stuff, uh, uh, that doesn't happen. Criminals don't get an honorable burial. It, it, just, it doesn't happen until it did. <laughs> Until it did. And then all the enigmas and the the puzzles of the passage come into crystal clear focus when we see them through the lens of Jesus. Multiple times, the Gospels tell us that when Jesus faced accusation and ridicule in his last days before he was crucified, he opened not his mouth, he was silent. And all four gospels record the story of a rich guy named Joseph, who uh, was a secret follower of Jesus because he didn't want to lose his job as one of the religious leaders, (laughs) who he he goes to the governmental authorities and says, can I have his body? And since it was a short walk from the cross to Joseph's own tomb that had just been carved out of the rock, he he took Jesus there, gave him an honorable burial in a rich man's tomb. When we read these verses backwards through the life of Jesus, they, the, the confusing nuances start to, to make sense. In just those two ways, and about a hundred more, um, Jesus' life fulfills all of the details of Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12, And in fact, from the very beginning, Christians have read this song as applying to Jesus. There's an early story in the history of the church right near the beginning. It's recorded in Acts uh, chapter 8 where an Ethiopian uh, court official is on his way back home from Jerusalem. He's made this like thousand mile journey just to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. He's, he's not Jewish. He's a, what they call a proselyte. That's a, a Gentile person who had come to be convinced that the God of Israel is the one true God and so is learning to worship and serve him. So anyway, this Ethiopian court official is on his way back home and he's reading out loud from the Jewish scriptures as he drives by this early Christian guy by the name of Philip. And Philip hears what he's reading out loud, and he kind of shouts into the chariot, like, do you understand what you're reading? Uh, and the Ethiopian uh, official is like, I'm, how am I supposed to understand this unless somebody explains it to me? Take a look at this. Uh, take a look at what it says. It says, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Do you know, can you explain to me, is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And and Philip says, that's a great question. And it says he goes on, beginning with this passage, to explain to him the good news about Jesus. Jesus, the, the servant with a capital S, the sacrifice, the substitute, the one that Isaiah is talking about in this whole song. Now, why is all of that important? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I said earlier I wanted to make a few observations on the, uh, on the text itself and then take a turn towards the theological, draw out some big-picture ideas. Uh, last week, as we went through verses 4 through 6, we saw over and over again the use of language that implies a substitute, one thing standing in for something else. You know, what, you know we use this term like a substitute teacher or maybe like the, um, the car that the dealership gives you, the rental car, when your car is in getting fixed or like the towel in place of the blanket. Like these are substitutes. Normally when we use the word, it implies something that it's like negative or at least neutral, right? Like a couple of weeks ago when we did the Kroger click list for our groceries and instead of the nice loaf of white bread we like, we got the kind with seeds and nuts in it, like booger bread. Not a good substitute. But in this passage, the substitution is positive. It's like doing your groceries and, and thinking you're going to get, uh, you know, a Hershey's bar and they're out. And so instead they give you like an incredible 70% dark chocolate bar that just tastes, you know, right? So it's an upgrade. This is, this is, this is a kind of substitute that is better than what you thought you were getting. Uh, if you look at verses four through six, we skim through them quickly. We can see where substitution shows up over and over again. Verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought peace was on him. His wounds, we're healed. Uh, Verse 8 in in our passage this week, uh, he's stricken for the transgressions of my people. But the clearest reference to substitution, to one thing standing in for something else, is in verse 6. We didn't have time to dig into it last week, but it has a bearing on what we're looking at this week. That last line in verse 6 says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Laid on him. The reason this is the clearest example of substitution is that that is a direct reference back to Leviticus 16. Back to Leviticus 16, which is where the ceremony of the Day of Atonement is spelled out. And as part of that ceremony, the the high priest will, with his hands, he'll lay his hands on the head of a goat, in this case, confess the sins, the transgressions, the iniquities of his people. And those sins and iniquities are are laid on that goat that is then sent off into the wilderness. It takes the sins of the people out of the camp uh, where God can, can deal with them. It's the same language, the same motion that we read in Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord has laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. Because a goat was never enough. An animal substitute was never enough enough. The problem is, a perfect goat could be a stand in for an imperfect human being as long as the kind of imperfection we're talking about in that human being is the imperfection, say, of, uh, of failure. You know, sometimes sin is failure. You, you, you know what the right thing to do is, but you're too weak to do it yourself, you fail. Sometimes sin is a result of moral defect or brokenness. You simply don't have the ability to do what is right. In both of those cases, a goat can, or a perfect animal perhaps could substitute for you. But in the case where our sin is the deepest, the cases where, and this might be all the cases, but the cases where we just simply don't want to obey, then a perfect goat, no matter how perfect it is, can never willingly give itself for us. At the the root of our sin, where, where we are in open rebellion, where we don't want to obey, Only a willing will can substitute for an unwilling will. Only a willing will can give itself for our unwilling wills. Animal sacrifice can never take away sin where it's the most serious. At the root in our open rebellion. So, I mean, animals then can only ever be a picture of substitution, a picture of a final sacrifice or substitution to come when a perfect human being would willingly place himself in the place of those of us who are unwilling. Which is all of us. It's only in Jesus that we find a perfect servant, a a perfect sacrifice, the one who did what no one else ever did or ever could, the one who chose, who willed to accept and submit to the substitute's role. See, Jesus was not a victim of historical events. He wasn't caught up in a web of circumstances victim to his own oversized dreams for a revolution in Israel. He wasn't swept up in the emotion, carried beyond his will to a death he didn't anticipate. In these verses, we see clearly that the servant, Jesus, he chose, he decided, he accepted the role of servant of substitute of sacrifice not only did he choose it but he forced himself to submit to it only a willing will can substitute for an unwilling will is the only way for Jesus to save the people he loves So what does that mean for us? What, what does that do in us or to us? Because I'm arguing from this passage and from the song as a whole that for us to be fully forgiven of our sins, especially our active and willful rebelliousness against God, someone has to willingly stand in for us. A willing will has to substitute for our unwilling wills. And that is, I think, the best good news that I've ever heard. Because it it means that even on those days when I don't want, when I don't want to follow God, when I don't want God to be in charge, when I want to do what I want to do, when I want to build my life myself in my own direction, under my own strength, with my own ideas, when I want to walk away from God. It's on those days that the grace of God shines through most clearly. Because even when, especially when I won't, Jesus will. Even when my will is unwilling, his will is always willing. Always willing to substitute himself for us. And when we respond to that, his willing will transforms our own unwilling wills in at least three ways. Uh, I only have time for three, but I think if we had more time, we could think of a whole lot more. First of all, uh, the substitution of Jesus' willing will for my unwilling will means I can rest. It means I can rest knowing that even my most egregious rebellions, all my walkings away, my wanderings away from the fold, they are substituted for. When I don't want to follow, Jesus follows for me. When I don't want to obey, Jesus obeys for me. When I don't want to submit, Jesus submits for me. So none of my rebellions, none of my wanderings, none of my disobediences are ultimately held against me. Jesus has already substituted his willing will for my unwilling and rebellious will. So I can rest. I don't have to come back from every rebellion trying harder for God to like me again. I don't have to come back from every failure saying, okay, God, this, that's the last time. From now on, it's, it's going to be better. Because Jesus' willing will is already substituted for all of my unwillingness now and in the future. So I can rest. I can rest, but I can also be transformed to follow. When we, When we find ourselves thinking that that God needs us to reform our own wills before he'll accept us, then the result is we spend the entirety of our lives just trying, trying harder, trying more, setting up more stringent rules, setting up more more structures, more whatever it takes to keep us, to to keep us from acting out the rebellion that's inside. Right, you you know the difference between a two-year-old and an adult is that the adult has been trained to change their their rebellion into socially acceptable ways. Right? The the two-year-old is just rebellious and lets everyone know. The adult is rebellious but has figured out a way to channel it. We're not talking about just channeling, proactively working against our own rebellion so maybe we're good enough for God to accept us. We're saying because Jesus has already substituted his unwilling will, will for my unwilling will, then I can actually follow him. And slowly see my own unwilling will transform to be like his. The Apostle Peter, actually, he, he jumps on a couple of these verses and uses them to call the church that he's writing to in the midst of their suffering and their persecution. And he says, you, you need to persevere. You need to endure because Jesus also suffered for you. This is in 1 Peter 1. He says, he left you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Remember what Jesus did. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Then Peter expands. He says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Remember, by his wounds you have been healed. So you can, you can suffer well. You can follow well, even when it costs you because you've come back to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So if, if it's true that Jesus' willing will has substituted for my unwilling will, it means I can rest, I can follow, but it, it also means I can love. I can love in a way that I couldn't otherwise. Uh, imagine this. Uh, imagine if Jesus on the cross paused for a moment took a little me time and thought is this really worth it is this really worth it i'm giving a lot here and i'm not sure what i'm going to get out of it i I i'm pouring out an infinite amount of love and i'm only ever going to get a paltry finite amount back and even then it's only going to be half-hearted these 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 people these wandering sheep, these <laughs> dirty sheep that, that. Are they worth it? Are they really, though? Of course. Uh, we can't imagine Jesus actually thinking something like that. Why? Because love. Because love. Because we know Jesus went to the cross, to his crucifixion, out of love. There's actually no other motivation that makes it uncoerced. Think about it. If you have to force someone to do something for you, it's no longer a willing will in place of your unwilling one. No other motivation but love could drive Jesus to the cross and still have it be a freely chosen willing will in place of ours. And only that kind of love poured out of Jesus into me and through me transforms the way I love people around me. So I can rest, I can follow, I can love. Because Jesus' willing will has substituted for my unwilling one. So what, what about you? What has the substitution of Jesus' will for your own done for you? I think if, if I were called to self-sacrificially love like Jesus in ways that no one would ever get or understand, in, in anything, any any more significant than getting out of bed to grab a blanket, then I, I probably wouldn't I don't think I'd be able to follow through on it. Which I think is kind of the point. The the sin in me that most needs forgiveness is the sin of I don't want to obey. I don't want God. As king, as lord, as anything. That's why we rejoice in a servant who, when given the choice to walk away, said in the garden, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, and submitted his own will to what he was doing on our behalf. Even when no one else understood it, even when no one got it, Jesus knew that his suffering had a bigger purpose, because it wasn't about him, it was about us. He took, on the cross, he took the slaughtering and the shearing and the striking so that we could be welcomed back into the fold welcomed back into the family of God. We're the sheep who wandered off, and he's the one who got treated like one. Willingly. Father, we confess that we do not have, we do not have the resources of love within us that would drive us to self-giving sacrifice in large or small ways on behalf of people who don't understand and will never get it. We confess we don't have the, the depths and the resources of love within us that would drive us to truly imitate your son and what he has done for us. It's only as his love is poured into us that we can in any way reflect his love to others. So we pray. May your goodness to us in the face of Jesus Christ shine on us and transform us so that our unwilling wills, having been substituted for may now be transformed into the likeness of the one who gave himself for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.